Meditation. 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 Depending on the quality of my mind. You know, there's good days and bad days. I mean, I feel like the waterfall of thoughts. Every now and then, a nice... Can't think of anything. This is Meditation in the City. The Shambhala New York Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Meditation in the City podcast, a podcast where we explore topics on Buddhist meditation and maintaining a meditation practice amidst living in a busy world. My name is Francesca, and I'm your host. The title of this episode is Ninja, the Heart of Engaged Compassion. We are living in a world torn apart by the violence in Ukraine and senseless school shootings here in America. As we learn to live with violence, disease, and suffering, beauty, love, and kindness are also an integral part of our lives. Our talk is about developing the spiritual resilience to face our world as it arises with engaged compassion. In Tibetan, this is called ninja, which means noble heart. By grounding ourselves in the present moment and accepting ourselves, we gain the confidence to rise to the challenge of being an awake and engaged practitioner. When we employ mindfulness and awareness in our lives, our actions become effective. Then we have the opportunity to engage with awareness and heal rather than harm, connect rather than dissociate, and love rather than hate. Today we are joined by Joseph Mauricio. Joe is a longtime student of Shambhala Buddhism, as well as an author, speaker, coach, teacher, and chaplain. As the founder of LifeWork Mindfulness-Based Coaching Services, Joe offers Buddhist and Shambhala training principles to help private and corporate clients manifest lives of dignity, sanity, and strength. The Meditation in the City podcast is hosted by the Shambhala Meditation Center of New York. Here's Joe to take away the discussion. I don't believe it's um, diminishing at all the tragedy and the suffering that is happening in Ukraine to say that it is also an opportunity to share our broken hearts with each other and to really connect from the point of view of our practice with those who are suffering and maybe even acknowledge our own suffering in whatever way we may be doing that. This is a really difficult time and a very challenging time for a lot of us. A lot of us have been through really difficult situations. And sometimes we have a tendency to want to quantify that or compare it to other people's problems. We think our problems are not worthy of consideration when people are suffering so greatly in other places in the world. But our suffering needs to be, I believe, acknowledged for us to be able to develop the strength of our own good heart. Because if we become depleted or so anxious or so depressed over the difficulties in the world that we cannot contribute any goodness back, then we're severely limiting our ability to actually help. And it's helping others that 
stands pretty much at the core of what's called the Mahayana or the great path of Buddhism. The vision of a bodhisattva or an enlightened being who basically has processed themselves enough to move beyond their own self-obsession or maybe to be able to acknowledge their own self-obsession enough to move beyond it so that they actually can be a meditative. And bodhisattvas, or those who dedicate themselves to service of others, find that that service, rather than depleting them, is very empowering, uplifting, and connected. I think there are few things as really rewarding in life as being service to other people and practically being a practical help to people in the world. That is dependent upon our mindfulness and awareness practice. This is the ground of the talk tonight, how important it is not to just jump right into the fire of whatever problems that we feel we want to address, whether they're personal, whether they're universal. That before we do that, we ground ourselves in our own practice and come from a point of view of mindfulness awareness, come from the point of view of being able to be mindful of our speech and aware of how that speech is affecting other people. And sometimes it's a very big statement. In fact, it may be an activist statement to be able to just hold space and be present to the suffering of the world or somebody else's particular suffering. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of suffering and talking to someone else who was there to presumably hold space for you and then have them completely continually try to fix you <laughs> and how that's kind of diminishing our experience when we do that. I've done it to other people because I have this big heart and I absolutely want everyone to be good and happy and joyous and free, but yet people have to acknowledge their own experience first. So the very first and the very beginning step of engaged compassion, which is what our talk is about today, is to be able to ground ourselves in the silence and discipline of the present moment, the hinayana or narrow path, you might call it. The um, shamatha meditation means the cultivation of peace. It's sometimes translated as calm of abiding. And it's this idea of just peacefully abiding in the present moment. That means boycotting all the things that might agitate us, which would diminish our ability to be peaceful. Because when we're agitated, we're maybe really concerned and caring, but we're of limited capacity to help because when the mind is agitated, it doesn't see clearly. So the point and purpose of shamatha or this 
calm abiding meditation is to ground ourselves in the present moment rather than force ourselves into it, but to ground ourselves to open up into the present moment so that we have the capacity to settle the mind so it can see clearly. So we're not just reacting to all the things that are kicking around in our heart or our brain, but we're actually allowing those things to settle and to come to a state of equanimity whereby we can see and hold space for each other most effectively. Shamatha practice is centered around the posture, and that doesn't always get expressed as much as I like to express it, but I think of it as a body thing rather than a mental thing. I believe that if you start with the body, the mind follows suit, and that, that's a more uh, effective way to work with the mind even than confronting the mind and telling it to quiet or slow down or create space or don't think about yourself so much, but actually turning the attention to the body. Allow your heart to open. This idea of awakening the heart is called the bodhicitta practice, a relative bodhicitta, which means awakened heart mind. It's like the mind in the heart center. And we're arousing its communicative ability or letting it open. The engaged heart of compassion begins with settling the body and then allowing the heart to begin to open. So settling the body and then accepting whatever it is we experience. Our hearts are really fathomless and completely expansive and endless. We limit our hearts by our own minds. We think we don't have enough. And because of that, we end up trying to get more and more and more from a world that only has so much to give us. And this becomes a sort of problematic, I think, for many people, at least from a Buddhist perspective, that we are actually grabbing, clinging, holding on and trying to acquire all the goodness in the world, not because we are intentionally greedy, but because we think we're bereft and we need more, that we are not strong enough, that we need to hold on to the goodness of the world. And what Tang Len suggests in the Mahayana or the Great Path of Buddhism suggests that we actually empower ourselves by letting go and quite the opposite that we actually empower ourselves by giving goodness to others giving our goodness away to others. that's it what i want to talk about today is being careful of that and understanding that the idea isn't to give things away to the extent that we deplete ourselves or diminish ourselves but that we actually include ourselves in all of the beings that we are endeavoring to serve. 
so that beginning with feeling goodness and kindness and love for ourselves is not running away from the darkness and tragedy in the world. It's giving ourselves a break so that we're better able to be able to deal with the challenges of life. I had an experience with a uh, psychotherapist who um, was schooled in a tradition that I'm very touched in and it's trained in a little bit myself as a meditation teacher, not as a therapist. I'm not a therapist, but the school is a Peter Levine's um, somatic experiencing. And Peter developed the system in Boulder, Colorado, and was a friend of memory members of the Shambhala community as well as other Buddhist communities. And I think his teachings and his awareness of how to work with trauma are so directly in line with Pema Chodron's way of looking at Tonglen, which is to make it really practical for all of us. Like how could our pain make us stronger and make us more connected to other people? And what a better way to move beyond our own suffering than to actually use it to become more consciously aware of other people and to use it as a way to be able to connect to other people. So this psychotherapist I had, who actually had an accent that sounds like a classic psychotherapist. I loved it. So people go, okay, sit up straight. And, um, and so somatic experiencing is that you don't talk too much and uh, your therapist will shut you up and he used to go and get me to silence myself, which is not easy if you know me. And just get me to silence myself. And the idea was then for me to feel how I feel, to just stop and, and feel. And one of the really profound things that I experienced is when I did that, I, I would always be upset at him, of course, because my ideas were brilliant and he was interrupting. And then I would immediately feel the opposite. I would feel so grateful that I was connecting to something more real, not just what my brain was telling me, but something that I was actually feeling. That was, the first really awakening thing from that course of study, but the second awakening that I had gentle, and I mean awakening with a small egg, but you know, a little bit of insight that I gleaned is the idea that I had a bad knee and I was complaining about it in my therapy session. And he went, okay, okay. Now do you have another part of your body that isn't hurting you? And I said, well, yeah, my other knee, it's fine. And he said, and your other knee is supporting you, isn't it? While this one is hurt. And I said, yeah. And he would have me, and this is very important to Peter Levine's work, acknowledge the goodness that's already happening in the world. And as well, acknowledge the pain I was experiencing, not to get rid of it, not to go, oh, well, I shouldn't be thinking about my bad knee because I have this strong knee, but to actually realize I had both. I had 
goodness and I had a woundedness. And that that goodness could actually care ultimately for the woundedness. In order for us to care for our woundedness or to really care for the woundedness in the world, the difficulties in Ukraine, the difficulties in the school systems in America, the difficulties in our personal lives. The way to really care for those things is to be able to make ourselves strong in the knowledge of believing in the things that support us. Whether we have a faith in God or a faith in the Buddhist principles, or faith in ourselves. Chugyu Trumper Rinpoche, who actually founded what became the Shambhala Centers, used to say that faith in the Buddhist tradition, which doesn't acknowledge a Godhead necessarily, but that faith in the Buddhist tradition is faith in the present moment. And then he would very classically say, and faith that you can do it. You can do it. You could believe in your goodness. Believe in your goodness. And that that actually could give you strength to be able to deal with the difficulty in the room. So it's actually interesting, isn't it? In our culture, I believe, particularly in the West, particularly in American West, particularly in Northeastern American West, if I could bring it down to something I understand really well, we tend to exaggerate everything. We tend to see the extremes of things. So we either need to be immersed in suffering and completely understand it and be in it and non-denying of it, but does not not deplete us and diminish our ability to actually be of service. Or we might say, okay, I can't deal with that. So I have to just be in a world of goodness and joy and just think of unicorns and rainbows and all the beautiful things. John Wellwood, who is a, a Buddhist psychologist um, and a brilliant, brilliant man, coined the term that I think many people know now of spiritual bypassing back in the 70s. This idea that we actually could become so zen that we are not touched by the difficulties in the world. Well, good for us, but are we helping anyone? Are we helping anyone if we don't get our hands dirty, if we don't feel the pain, if we're not heartbreaking every day by what's actually happening in the world, what's happening in Ukraine, what's happening in our high school? Are we not turning away from our world if our heart doesn't break a little bit. But if we can't also acknowledge the joy and goodness of our own basic goodness, of our own good heart, then we don't have the strength to be able to help anyone. There's an idea of Tathagatagarbha uh, as one who has gone beyond in the Buddhist path. The Tathagatagarbha has attained awakening in a state of understanding beyond their own greedy, needy 
neurotic tendencies that make themselves constantly feel better. They've gone beyond that. But then there's something called the Sugata Garbha, which comes from the Mahayana tradition. The Sugata Garbha means one who has gone beyond joyfully. Or Trump Rinpoche would say, gone beyond with a sense of humor. And I hope you don't think sense of humor diminishes the suffering in the world. It does, it's not intended to. There's different levels of humor, of course, and there, there are levels of humor that don't really acknowledge any suffering. They're just trying to get away from the suffering or blame it on someone else. But the deeper levels of humor just simply mean that we're beginning to see the absurdity of worrying about all the little things that we're always caught up with while there's such a huge world and how much of that world needs our attention. So much more than a sale at Walmart, how much of that world needs our good heart. And if you've ever thought, as I have frequently, and I, I know many people have that like, well, what do I do? I don't know what to do. And I'm somebody that could actually go into really kind of tears and convulsions over, you know, right, uh, as commercials about rescue animals. <laughs> it just breaks my heart beyond a point where not, I even know how to process it. Like it's, it's kind of too much for me. But I think it's important for me to be with that. And I also wonder for me personally why that's more impactful for me than hearing the news about other humans. And of course, I think the answer most people will give is, well, animals can't defend themselves. They don't know differently. It's really up to us. But I do think it would be wonderful for me to begin to develop that same depth of feeling for the people in the world, even the people that I think are creating the problem, if I could have compassion for them as I would for a puppy or a kitten, you know, that I could actually see them as basically good and part of the fabric of our life. Like how freeing would that be to be able to take the mantle of resentment Take the mantle of judgment. Take the mantle of defensiveness off myself. And just let myself really be a server. And I want to conclude the, the talk by talking about one aspect of serving the world that is often overlooked. And especially in our extreme culture might be even diminished or looked on derisively, and that is to simply hold space. What I have learned is that your trauma triggers mine and that our pain is a shared experience and that somebody needs to hold the space and allow that experience to settle and clarify. That actually the bodhisattva, along with being active in terms of trying to fix and help 
the world begins with just sitting still, begins with good posture, begins with moving your head away from the frontal lobes of constantly trying to figure it all out and back into the more comprehensive wholeness of our heart center, a real feeling. And if we could actually hold space from that point of view, below our judgment, below our, what do I do now? Below our panic, below thinking about me, if we could actually just be present with that broken heart, that space is in itself quite healing. And it also is a wonderful opportunity for us then to find the next right step in terms of doing something more active or more practical. But if you feel broken about something and you react against it, your first impulse almost surely is going to be inaccurate and maybe cause greater harm. Blaming something or reducing your mind down to being part of the vicious equation of aggression. But if you could stop and come back, bring the mind back down to the heart and be present in ourselves, then our next move might come from clarity. And it might be a response rather than a reaction. You know? And from some point of view, reactions just keep the ball of aggression going. That lineage of aggression that has begun since humans first walked on two legs or maybe well before that. And have continued parent to child, parent to child as a lineage of abuse and aggression. And maybe we could actually as bodhisattva warriors be willing to be present with our own broken but incredibly powerful heart. In Tibet, they call that heart ninja or noble heart. The idea of being brave enough to actually be present, brave enough to be here with the pain, brave enough to, as Pema children would say, stay to learn to stay. We have a few minutes and I wonder if you would share your thoughts with each other with me. Hi. Yeah. Hi. No, no, please. please. I was just going to say maybe Sarah has something to say. (laughs) Nuh-uh. I was going to say, it doesn't have to be questions and answers. It could be also just expressing your thoughts, you know, so just open it up for people. But here you are offering. Um, Thank you for the teaching. Um, I, uh, a lot of bells went off for me. A lot of, a lot of noodles stuck to the wall. Um, Um, I was thinking when you were talking about the heart being infinite and not to worry about 
getting contaminated doing Tonglen. Um, it made me think of, of traditional Chinese medicine and, and some other systems in which um, it's said that there's like a function and a system which manifests as an organ rather than the other way around. Like the function is an epiphenomena of the organ. That's not the way it is in this system. So it's like the energy and the consciousness and the function creates the organ. The organ is a result of that. And that, um, so like there are all these functions that kind of manifest as the heart, not just the organ. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and that helps yeah. me to feel it more spacious, like conceptually. I guess, like I can do it somatically um, just by spending time with my awareness in my heart center. But sometimes I also like, it helps me to be on board conceptually. Um, so that was one thing. And then um, I also have a lot of trouble seeing animals suffering. I've never been able to make it through a Disney movie without becoming suicidal. Um, I, watching Benji, I ran from the room and just bawled for two hours um, because some guy with a big boot kicked Benji's girlfriend, Tiffany, under the table. And, um, and I couldn't deal with that. Like, I just, I couldn't deal with it. And um, I get angry at the TV commercials because I criticize it for being an unskillful way to reach people. Um, finally, the Bodhisattva vow, um, I took it uh, with um, Punlap Rinpoche and he explained that um, there, are, there are three modes in which you can choose to take it. And when you, when you are taking the vow, you give rise to one of these aspirations. And one of them is king-like bodhicitta, which is the aspiration to become enlightened first and lead everybody there. And then there's oarsman-like bodhicitta, which is the aspiration to bring you all together. And then there's shepherd-like bodhicitta, um, which is to bring them before you. And um, the one that just came up for me was shepherd-like. And he said, now you have to let everybody go before you at the grocery store. <laughs> like forever and ever, <laughs> every day. And um, yeah, so like, I liked what you said about the middle way because it would be easy to feel compulsive or um, puritanical, I think, um, about doing that perfectly. So thank you. That's, that's what I have to say. Thank you. Thank you for saying what you have to say. It's good. Well, I'd, I'd like to thank you for just a, a wonderful uh, fusion of practice, uh, um, compassion, uh, and, and instruction 
Joe. I think it's really uh, wonderful. And all six of us together have uh, have come together really. Uh, uh, I, I believe with a, with a motivation and an intention and uh, a strength to, um, to uh, follow the Dharma. Thank you very much, Ed. Lovely, lovely work. Yeah, I'd like to echo that and add, um, I hope a note of some humor in the sense that, uh, did you know that Vladimir Putin has one weak spot, that he loves puppies? You can contemplate that one. Thank you, Joe. I think Hitler liked dogs too. German shepherds attacked dogs. Oh. <laughs> well, in, also in terms of the Shambhala teachings altogether, the idea of basic goodness, you know, which is a very specific, I think. Well. I think it generally relates to Buddha nature and Bodhicitta, of course, and that, that experience that many Buddhist traditions have, but in the Shambhala tradition in particular, we talk about how all beings have Bodhicitta, no matter how reprehensible their actual manifestation may be. And I didn't mean that judgmentally. I think the example that gets used is like an alligator, an alligator, it still loves its young and, you know, it loves to bathe in the sunlight and, you know, feel the warmth of the sun on the shore and, you know, has an experience of kindness and love somewhere in its defensive, otherwise defensive nature. Maybe inside we all love puppies sometimes. You know. <laughs> Thank you for that, Petra. I think Chogun Trungpa said something about how everybody has something, even if it's just tacos. <laughs> I don't know if that's that came from him or not. <laughs> Thank you. My dog has been barking incessantly through the whole program. And it's hard. <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with it. But that daily Ukraine meditation, that is a real practice. And what the Ukrainians are offering us, it's, it's really furthered my broken heart in trying not to fall into it too deep, to turn it around. And I've certainly known the Tomlin practice for a long time, but this is hard, Tonglin, because each day they share devastating stories that are real and now. But thank you very much for guiding us through and reminding us of how we do this. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Thank, thank you, you, Judy. Thank you. And just one glimpse of how we do this. There are lots of different things that we can do to support each other. 
thank you, all of you that are going to the, um, you know, Compassion for Ukraine daily Hanglen gathering. And thank you for coming here and supporting Shambhala New York. Shambhala New York has been a bastion of sanity for lots of people, even when it gets crazy in the world. It's, it's been for a lot of people a place to come, find the goodness of the Dharma as a protective influence on us. So please keep up your practice for the benefit of all beings, as they say. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, we invite you to leave us a rating and review, subscribe, and share this episode with your friends. Shambhala NYC also offers a variety of meditation courses for meditators of all levels. Check out our upcoming programs at shambhalanyc.org. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.